This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with David Nolan. Hey, David. Hey. So you're probably not known uh, quite as well in the Ruby world as the closure world. So would you mind kind of giving a quick overview of who you are and what you do? Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm David Nolan. I actually work primarily as a Rails and JavaScript developer at the New York Times. I work on a team called Interactive News here. And then sort of I do a lot of open source development um, in Clojure as well as ClojureScript in my sort of like free time. Uh, funny enough, I, get, I, I do get invited to, to things like JavaScript conferences. But honestly, most of those I talk about ClojureScript. Yeah. And then of course, I do this sort of like I go into a lot of functional programming conferences and uh, closure conferences as well. Mm-hmm. But my day job is mostly Ruby and JavaScript. Mostly Ruby. Interesting. Yeah. So that's actually a little surprising to hear that uh, you're mostly doing Ruby. I, the stuff that you, like you said, your talks and your writing and all this, it seems like your, your passion and your focus is, is on this closure side slash functional programming side of the world. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, I've been working at the New York Times for four years now. And honestly, for me, I'm more even though I am very excited about functional programming, I mean, I've been programming in various languages for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing I'm most excited about is making software. <laughs> functional programming happens, to, I think, to have uh, some things that I think are really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, a lot of the work that I do is user interface programming. And so, you know, trying to figure out what are the best ideas to continue to borrow from, you know, object-oriented practice. And then, you know, how do we merge that with some of the cool ideas coming from the functional programming world? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not uh, quite as religious as, as some people you might encounter in the yeah. functional programming community. You know, I'm still a fan of dynamic programming languages. Um, uh, for me, it's, I, I would say the thing I'm most interested in is like, you know, how can we combine sort of object-oriented practices, like best practices, but how can we sort of merge that with immutable values, basically? Yeah definitely want to talk more about that but it it struck me that you said you know the word pragmatic and to me that's one of the things i love about closure in general is there's this sort of attitude of like yes we think these are good ideas and we think they're important but we're taking the stance very much focused on the fact that we want to get things done at the end of the day and that's something that to me sort of killed earlier attempts at making you know getting lisp widely adopted was Mm -hmm. there i didn't feel like there was that sense yeah, uh, so so there's definitely um, that's something that is pervades the closure community. People want to use this stuff for work. Um, there's a lot of excitement, of course, in the closure community about with around academic ideas. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if something doesn't seem to be working in practice, pe- you know, people move on to something that's you know gonna, going to get the job done. Mm-hmm. So um, definitely, people are pretty pragmatic in the closure community. Cool. So I want to start diving into some of your projects. I think the most notable of which is probably ClojureScript. Right. Uh, can you give a quick uh, overview of that? So it's it's not my project. Um, that was something that Rich Hickey started now almost three years ago. I mean, I sort of jumped on board because I do Ruby and Rails here at the New York Times, but really the language I probably know the best is JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've been doing you know considerable amounts of JavaScript in the past eight years, so I sort of had some expertise in JavaScript and you know what's going to be fast in JavaScript and so on. So I got excited about the ClojureScript compiler. And that's kind of where I started started hacking like two and a half years ago. I started hacking on the compiler. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the project kind of needed a steward um, in some sense, like somebody to like review patches and go over tickets and, you know, sort of triage issues and that sort of thing. Honestly, some of the most amazing stuff that's happened in ClojureScript wasn't me. It was just me like reviewing patches and, 
making sure that um, there were good patches so sure. we could merge them in. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, can you give us the what is ClojureScript pitch? Right. So ClojureScript is a, um, a version of Clojure that targets JavaScript engines. Uh, Clojure currently, the two major implementations are well, one for the JVM, which is what most people are using. And uh, now a lot of people are starting to use ClojureScript uh, because it's becoming mature. Mm -hmm. And the language, the overlap of Clojure and ClojureScript is almost total in terms of language features. It's just that the thing they output is JVM bytecode versus JavaScript. Yes, so there are going to be some small differences because Clojure as well as ClojureScript, don't, they don't really try to hide the host mm -hmm. in many ways. So there are some small differences between Clojure and ClojureScript that are very much related to the host. Right, totally. Uh, so I, I recently uh, did a little uh, code vacation uh, with a friend of mine, and we spent about a week writing ClojureScript for the first time. Picked it up fresh, you know, at the start of the trip, and worked on some things. And I got to say, I really enjoyed it. Cool. That's yeah. good to hear. Yeah, it was a really, it's a great experience. That's awesome because it was a pretty bad experience for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that still needs work. I mean, that's something where everybody's concerned about is making sure that the experience continues to improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that time between like, okay, I want to do this and how long it takes you to get a dev environment set up is definitely, can be a killer if it's too much. Definitely, definitely. But we, we didn't have too much trouble with it. And then we found that we were pretty productive with it reasonably quickly. I have done some closure in the past and it, it was a pretty painless process. That's really um, good to hear. Um, I Definitely, I think one of the biggest things, uh, I don't know how many people follow the sort of compile to JavaScript thing. There's There's quite a few languages now, but we have source maps. And so... I mean, I, I know how the compiler works, but like now that we have source maps, debugging ClojureScript is, is like relatively pleasant. Whereas in the past, it was like peering into tea leaves in a in a drained cup. Yeah. you really had to you really had to be an expert. To yeah, make it work. totally. So why don't we talk about some of the interesting things that we get from using ClojureScript instead of JavaScript? Because there we sort of need to make the pitch, I think, a little bit. Right. So a lot of people say, well, what's what's the big deal? So ClojureScript's main value proposition is really the um, standard library. And the standard library is almost entirely built around immutable data structures, mm -hmm. which we uh, basically were originally in Clojure written in Java, and we actually wrote them in ClojureScript itself. And that was kind of like a really great dog-fooding project mm -hmm. um, because in Java, they're extremely efficient. So uh, in ClojureScript, it was a challenge because it's like we're writing in a higher-level language, and we want to make sure that we get at least the performance of JavaScript, uh, right? Sure. I, I mean, 3,000 lines of, of the ClojureScript standard library are dedicated completely to the implementation of data structures. Hmm. So in many ways, ClojureScript is a DSL over an immutable collections library. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and, and these immutable values are actually kind of a big deal. It's one of these design decisions that, to me, has serious architectural consequences and that, that sort of ripple out like crazy. And i am really been digging it. Yeah, they're, they're really cool. I mean, so uh, the, the neatest thing, I don't know if everybody's familiar, but uh, that's really Rich Hickey's innovation um, in Clojure was sort of taking a couple papers that people were sort of like theoretical as like this could be done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Rich Hickey really wrote the first implementations based off of this guy, Phil Bagwell, that showed that it's possible to have um, really fast, really fast data structures, uh, basically things that look like arrays or things that look like dictionaries, mm -hmm. and the operations will be extremely quick. 
And, and really the trick is that underneath the hood, we use arrays and we use array mutation, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of, run, particularly JavaScript runtimes and the Java runtime, as long as you're working with fairly small arrays, these operations are very fast. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, as a skeptic, why, why do I want my data to be immutable? I actually don't, I mean, if you're a Ruby, if you're a Ruby programmer, I think you sort of internalize this in many ways. Like when you look at a typical Ruby program, um, people like select, they like filter, they like uh, map. These, these functional operations, people just use them as second nature. Mm -hmm. And when you sort of chain them, of course, you're just thinking I'm applying a series of transformations. Mm -hmm. But you're doing this in an immutable way, right? It's not like if you were mutating along the way, you'd get a result and be like, wow, that's wrong. Right. So I think people sort of understand immediately that immutability is useful and I, I think it just hasn't sunk in well if you, even your collections themselves are immutable there's all these cool things you can do a lot of things that happen in um, programs disappear like who changed this value you don't care about that or like do I have to defensively clone this value mm -hmm. things about ownership like who owns this value those sorts of complexity that type of complexity I think disappears uh, which I think you know if you're really you're really used to it you, you sort of internalize this but when you really dig into a language that's structured on immutable values, when that concern just sort of fades away, I think it's pretty liberating, actually. Mm, definitely. It's interesting that immutable values, I feel like when, when you pitch this to people, you have to defend it. Like, wait, why would I want my data to be immutable? And that's kind of an accident of history where memory used to be very scarce and expensive. And so we had to reuse these same places over and over again. And so that's what people got used to. And so this immutable thing looks weird when, in fact, if we'd had you know, this much memory to start with, we maybe would have gone down this road a lot earlier. Yeah, I think memory is a concern, but I, I definitely don't want to uh, belittle like the, the work that went into the implementation that Clojure has. I mean, so until Rich had actually proved that it could be done, really fast implementations of, uh, of an array-like structure actually did not exist in um, Scala, Haskell. I mean, all the fast ones that exist now are based off the Clojure version. Huh. And just, just to give you an idea of how fast it is, in an immutable vector, a Clojure's immutable vector, it's basically actually what's called a, a bitmapped array try. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we use bit masking and we use arrays of, of, that have 32 elements each. And if you think that, that the branching factor is 32, this means that you can get to... Say you have 2 billion things in a vector, right? Mm -hmm. And this is conceptually like an array. In order to get to any element in that vector, at most you have to do seven array accesses. Mm. And so that's on modern hardware, it turns out because of like uh, cache lines and stuff, it ends up being even better than, than, than it sounds, right? Mm. So that's, that's pretty wild that you, you only have to access seven arrays to get to any particular thing. That's the worst case. That's not even the best case. On a, on a giant structure. On a giant structure, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so one of the other things that I really uh, enjoyed actually about my ClojureScript experience was getting compile time errors. Yeah, that's also pretty cool. I, I, I didn't think that was coming, and all of a sudden I saw it. I was like, oh, yeah, that is useful. Yeah, yeah, so that's definitely something I really like. I mean, granted, um, there's you know really good JavaScript linters now, um, uh, but it's nice, it's, nice, it's nice that that's sort of you know, baked into the uh, ClojureScript compiler, and it's not a separate tool. Yep, totally. So let's jump topics a little bit to, to related but different and talk about core async. I gave a talk uh, internally at ThoughtBot about um, Clojure in general and core async in particular, and I'm not sure if I did a great job of describing it. I think it can be done, but I, I think I had trouble making the point without showing like a lot of examples or like, let's write it together. 
Right. Can you help me out there and kind of give me like a, a pitch for that? So I think if the people in the Ruby world that are sort of familiar with event machine will probably sort of understand the basic model that that, that allows. I mean, it basically allows you to write what looks like straightforward control flow. And then behind the scenes, some magic is going on so that it looks synchronous, but it's actually asynchronous, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's what we want. We want to be able to read uh, code without complex control flow without having to transform the code manually into a series of callbacks. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really at the high level what's trying to eliminate. Right. There are lots of languages that have async await, which is like, I, want, I have an asynchronous operation, I want to wait, and I want it to look like it's straight, uh, the control flow is straight. But really, a lot, of, a lot of the types of operations you do are, are like processing on streams, right? You'll have a, a stream of an asynchronous values, and it's plugging into some other asynchronous thing, and then you're merging it with some other asynchronous source. So Core Async really delivers two things. It allows you to write your async programs in a very straightforward way. But then when you have like a complex stream of asynchronous events, it also gives you the tools to sort of manage complexity there. Mm, cool. So we used, ended up using Core Async in uh, that code vacation that I took. And it was great because we had reached a point where suddenly we're like, oh, we need a callback here to update this thing after this thing happens. And I was like, oh, this has been so nice so far. I like how all the code looks. I really don't like the idea of doing this callback. And the beauty of Core Async is it doesn't look like you're using callbacks. Yes. That, that to me, like, you know, you write the code like a, a happens, B happens, C happens. B happens to be asynchronous and you have to wait until it comes back. But you just write it like you don't. And Core Async right. makes it just look like straight line code that happens all at once. But actually, it's, it's writing those callbacks and handling all that, you know, parking and all that annoying stuff for you. Yeah, you get, I mean, you get to, your code looks really, really simple, and then it does the transformations for you. I mean, the, one of the coolest things about Core Async is that Core Async didn't really require any modifications to the Clojure or Clojure Script compiler. Yeah. This is like, this is like the, the ultimate macro, right? It's, it's completely done outside of um, any lower level hooks into the language. Right. Yeah, that is really impressive. And that's, I sometimes have trouble like convincing people like, why are macros good? Like, what's, what's the point of all these parentheses? Like, what does that give you? What does that win you? And this is kind of a perfect example. You added this, this, this feature as not a language level feature, but it's just a library that you can opt into. Yeah, and, and actually, if you, if you go and look at other people that have done async await, it almost always requires modifying existing compilers. Mm -hmm. You really, there's just no other, there's no other option. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, to me, I was pretty impressed that they were able to pull it off. Same, and it tells me that like, that's one of the powers of Lisp, is we don't know what the next thing that you're going to be able to do is later without you know, rewriting the compiler, but I think it opens the door to doing like, these substantial code rewriting things in a clean way. Yeah, and I and I will say that like other languages are starting to get on board. I mean, I think the past couple of years has been I've been blown away. Like JavaScript has macros now, and Python has like a pretty popular like macro AST thing. Mm. But even Scala, Scala for a long time they were like really anti macros, and they finally just said, okay, let's experiment with them. Mm. And what's happened is that they've been able to remove remove a lot of complexity from the compiler. Mm. Right? It's it's really nice when you can keep your compiler small and simple. And these other sort of uh, transformations happen outside the compiler. Mm. Do, do these languages that are not homoiconic, can they have macros that are as nice or are, are they comparable? That's, I think, a matter of, you know, maybe there's a little matter of opinion there, right? So okay. Lisp, definitely with, with Lisp, it's easy. It's just by nature of the way that Lisp, um, the homoiconic nature of Lisp, it's very simple. But, you know, I, I've looked at some of these other macro systems and they are expressive. They're maybe not as clean and not as nice as they are in Lisp. But 
people are working on making them nice, like nice enough for normal human beings to use, mm-hmm. right? That counts. <laughs> That's most of our most of the users, I imagine. Right. <laughs> so you want to talk about Ohm a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure. So Ohm, Ohm caused quite a splash, um, and that was, uh, I think, the reason that caused a bit of a splash was, I don't know how many people are familiar with React. React was a library that uh, Facebook announced last year, uh, which is quite cool. But at the time, um, a lot of people ignored it because it sort of mixed like XML syntax inside your JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And um, people were like, that's crazy. I'm not going to use this. And in fact, I actually ignored it as well. Uh, it was only until my friend Brandon Bloom was like, no, David, you have to look at this. You have to look at this. And I kept ignoring it. And then Pete Hunt, which is, who's one of the devs, um, gave a great talk at JSConf EU last year on the architecture. Uh, and it's really great. They, they really adopted a sort of like game engine style. And that's something that, that was never communicated on the website itself. Hmm. Uh, so the architecture is really clean. It's really nice. Uh, and it, as it turns out, I, I did an experiment. I wonder if immutable data structures and React's diffing approach to rendering mm-hmm. uh, would be cool. And it turned out to be an amazing fit. I mean, it's just a really, really great fit. Before we, you go into that a little bit more, can you talk about what that React architecture is? Right. So if you do a lot of JS, uh, people, so you, know, you manipulate the DOM. And as it turns out, manipulate, interacting with the DOM is slow for a variety of reasons. Things like querying the DOM is actually extremely slow. Imagine your, your document has 50,000 nodes. Running a JScript query means you're going to have to traverse, right? You have to traverse. So querying is innately uh, a slow operation. But even things like mutating the DOM is a slow operation, right? So if you're in the middle of a loop and you change the DOM, you are going to trigger reflows and repaints and all these other, other types of things. And often you'll, you'll be doing that at a very inopportune time for the user, and so the, the interface gets janky or slow. So the React guys um, basically were like, we want to have a very smooth, nice experience, and what they do is they basically have a virtual DOM, so your code produces a virtual DOM, and they keep track of, um, of each state of your application, and they do the diff, and at the end of the diff, they apply all the changes at once. So mm-hmm. this means that, like, you, like say you put that uh, change set at request animation frame, so, so the user will never see any glitches. The user won't see stutters. Um, it's just a nicer model. And again, uh, React is, React's approach is not novel. This, this technique has been applied to games for probably at least two decades. Hmm. Are these diffs queued up then? So the diffs happen lazily, but the, what the, the change set, the, the actual changes they will make to the DOM, yes, they're, they're queued. And then they're all applied at once. Gotcha. Okay. And so now bring us back to, to Ohm where that came and you said, hey, immutability is awesome over here on these data structures. Can we push them all the way out to the, the front end, basically? Yeah. So I did some benchmarks. And of course, people were shocked because ClojureScript is compiled and it's slower than handwritten than JavaScript. And then we use immutable data structures, which are slower than uh, JavaScript data structures. But in the end, uh, Ohm actually beats out most JavaScript MVC frameworks. Speedwise. Speed-wise, and that was just because React itself is fast, and React plus immutable data structures is faster. Again, my, the, my claim wasn't that it's the fastest thing, right? You can always write faster code. The point is that we get fast code and we don't have to spend much time, mm-hmm. right? That's the big idea. You get a lot of optimization for free. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Are you writing lots of little own components for your you know, play projects or work or anything like that? Uh, so not at this time. There, there. I mean, Ohm is Ohm is so new, right? It, it's like 
three months old, and there are, um, there are a couple things still missing. People, I will say, people are already building reusable components, and people are building production applications. That's sort of already sort of happening. It's already in full swing. Mm. Um, but there are a couple things that I am still like slightly unhappy with, which won't require like big changes for used current users, mm -hmm. but I think will fix some problems. Um, so in a big way, Ohm is an attempt to get all the benefits of object-oriented approaches but then get these benefits from immutable values as well. So a, a classic example, the one I always bring up is things like undo. If you've ever built a user interface and you tried to implement undo, it's kind of a huge pain. And in fact, taking an existing application and trying to retrofit undo mm. is kind of like a ridiculous amount of work. Yep. And so in Ohm, we actually like things like undo, we get almost for free. It, just because we're, because we're using diffing, right? Think about Git, like in Git, of course you're getting undo for free. It's the, it's the whole model. And so Ohm is the same. The model allows uh, jumping backwards and forwards in time. Uh, it makes it really trivial. Mm -hmm. So in Ohm, you store all of your client-side UI state in sort of one big associative place, right? It, that's true, yes. And then you take that state when it changes. You have like one, one function that says, hey, the, the world has changed. There's new state in the world. And you take the pieces you need and feed them into components to render. Is that accurate? That's correct. And then React will do the diffing. And the reason it's the reason we can do this quickly is because if two things are the same in memory, that's the fastest check you can do. And then you know you don't need to look at the the subtrees of your UI, right? If the if the value of the old version of the UI and the new version of the UI are identical in memory, React doesn't have to keep diffing. It's done with that part of your app your application. What do you mean by value there? Say I have a, a, an associative data structure which represents people, mm -hmm. a, a list of people. Yep. And my application renders that in a list. Say I change only the middle one. So mm -hmm. when I do the React diff, it'll see the first person didn't change. We don't need to re-render that component. The second person changed, we need to descend into that data structure and figure out precisely what changed. Maybe the last name changed. And then we, we compute that, re-render, and then the third guy, oh, nothing changed. Gotcha. So we can do this really fast check because we know that the two things are the same in memory. So this is actually impossible to do with mutable data structures. Hmm. With mutable data structures, just because two things are the same thing in memory, it doesn't mean that they're the same. Why not? If you mutate an array, they're going to be equal in memory, but you don't know what changed. Hmm. Okay. You don't know what changed. So it turns out React has to, has to do something slow. React always re-renders everything all the time, mm. right? It has to diff everything. Yep. And so that's why, like, out of the box, Ohm is, like, almost two times faster than React. Mm -hmm. It's just because uh, we're able to detect parts of your application that don't need, that did not change faster. Uh, if you have mutable data, even if it's the same memory, you can't tell what changed. Is that because, like, you're not tracking the history or something? You can't compare between the two? or So you could do that if you provide some higher level API that tracks like, so JavaScript programmers, they want to use arrays and they want to use objects. They yeah. don't want to use a different API to manipulate those values. Okay, sure. So what that means is that if that you allow programmers to just change an array, then you can't know that it changed by checking efficiently. There's no way, there's no way to detect something changed if you're not, if you allow people to access those raw values, the raw array. Okay, you know that you, hey, this thing like hashes to a different thing. Um, so like, you, again, so if you want to hash it, you're going to have to, you know, if it's large, you're going to have to traverse the whole thing to, to determine that yeah. it's different. Um, so how does the equality happen, check happen then? 
So you just so React just has to diff the whole thing. Diff. Every time they'd have to diff the whole thing. Okay. Say I have a million things, yeah. and I only change something in the middle. Yeah. The yeah. only way to know that it changed is to traverse the entire thing. In right. in closure, if we change something, we just know immediately that we need to go into it. But if if the value is the same in memory, we absolutely know we don't have to look at it. You don't have that capability in JavaScript. You can't know that it hasn't changed without traversing it. In closure and closure script, if they're the same thing in memory, we don't have to we don't have to look at it at all. I think maybe I'm thrown off by when you say it, they're the same thing in memory. Are there two does two distinct values that are the same? No, 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 no. So this, that, that, that's the cool, this is the sort of optimization game you can play with immutable values. So uh, in Ohm, for example, we do have a mutable top level thing, which is like the database. Yep. So say I have a thing with a million things in it. Yep. And say I render, and we didn't change anything there. When we get to diffing that piece of data, we'll see that they're the same thing in memory because we didn't change anything. Okay. But, if I, but if I, instead, if I update this database and I change something in the middle of it, that will break reference equality. That will actually ruin it. So when we get to it, we'll say, oh, they are not the same thing in memory. Um, so we need to, we need to uh, examine its contents. But what's cool about that is that that gives us the ability to skip over things that don't change. Oh, so you're looking at top-level things and not diving into them, like comparing the quality of those things, and you yeah. only dive into like a, a larger structure that may have changed. So, but, and if you think about the way that UIs work, you have a very complicated user interface, but only very small parts of the interface are actually changing. Mm. So that means we can guide the diffing much more, much more quickly because we can ignore these top levels that did not change. And then when we find a top level that did change, we can quickly find the path that's different. Okay. That's not possible in React, right? Because you just can't figure this out. You could figure it out if you provided an API over JavaScript objects, over arrays, because then you could do sort of some, uh, some kind of dependency tracking yourself. But the problem is that JavaScript developers don't want to do that. They just want to use regular JavaScript data. Okay. Uh, uh, can I walk through this one more time? Just to yeah. To, so we have immutable structure. So this is our app state. It's got a, a bunch of elements. We swap out one. We now have a new app state. Uh, one thing is different. In, because it's immutable, we can just check the top level equality of things until we find one that's not equal, and then we can dive into that thing. Yep. That, and so that's fast because all we, we can stop at the top level for things, yep. except for when we, have to, when we can't. In mutable things, normal JavaScript arrays, we have a million things, something changes in the middle. Can't we just also check the top level of those things the same way? If it's, it's also a JavaScript array or if it's a JavaScript object, you have to go inside of it. You have to go inside of it. Okay. How come you... Because you don't know that they're, you don't know that they didn't change. You can't do equality on the top level things. You can't check the equality of them without descending into them. So there's no equality operator in JavaScript that will let you know that something changed inside. Okay. okay. Would, 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 would you agree? There's no way to check that. So if I have an array, yeah, and I stored the previous version of the thing, yeah, if I change something inside of it, there's no way to know that they're the same or that they're different. So you can't compare, you know, new and old without looking at every element in the array. It's just, it's just not possible, right? Okay. But in immutable land, you can do that. You can, because if it's the same thing in memory, we know it's not different. If both of these references are pointing to the same thing, you mean? It's a, a pointer. It's a pointer equality check. It's a okay. pointer equality check. But, are we but pointing remember, in the same place? But in, in JavaScript, beside, outside of primitives, everything is a pointer equality check anyway. So if I compare two objects, it's a pointer equality check. If I compare two arrays, it's a pointer equality check. In JavaScript, yep. when you use double equals, that's going to do on, on arrays and objects, 
a pointer, a quality check. Okay. But because those things that you're comparing are mutable, there's no that pointer quality check does not tell you anything about whether they're the same or not. Why not? If they both point to the same spot, you're right in the sense. Okay, say I say I use a JavaScript array, mm-hmm. and say in in React I change it, and and again we we are, we generate the DOM from that value. We generate the DOM from that value. Yep. The first version of the array. Yeah. Then I mutate the array. Yeah. Well, of course it's the same as the last array because of the same thing in memory. It doesn't tell me that that when I'm after the mutation, that the DOM needs to be different. There's not enough information there for me to know that. The only way I can know that is to completely regenerate the virtual DOM again. Okay. To get to that value that's like, the, that value in the array is different. Okay. So that's, you see, so even though the same thing in memory, checking that they're the same doesn't tell me anything. The, the only thing I can do in order to get the, the, the diff is to just re-render everything again. Okay. And then when we get to the value that changed, we'll know that's the part of the DOM we need to fix. Yep. And but again, if there are multiple things in that array, we have to we have to descend every value in that array to figure out what's different. Every single one. We have to go inside every single value in the array. Okay. There's no way to ask an array what's different in you. No, there's no there's just no way yeah. in JavaScript yeah. for to do that. But but again, this applies to this applies to Python lists and Ruby Ruby arrays. It's, they, they all work the same way. Right. There's yep. just no way to figure this out. Yeah. Now in Ohm, you got an immutable val, immutable array. Yep. We generate the DOM, and then we update the app state. Yep. And now, of course, something is different. Right. But all the ones that didn't change, we don't have to look at those at all, because those will point to the same thing in memory. And in our world, if two things point to the same thing in memory, they can't possibly have changed. It's not possible. Right. But then we find the thing where the, pointer, the pointers are different. Yep. Then we're like, the pointers are different. We got to look inside. Okay. It's like definitely counterintuitive um, why that you, we, can, we can rely on the pointer equality being the same as the, uh, a way to ignore. Yeah. Like it, it gives us the, the ability to ignore things. Oh, we don't know that one two three hasn't that what's at one two three hasn't changed. Exactly. Okay. That, that's that's so we can't just po- say the pointer. Oh, it still points to one two three. Therefore, we're good. We have to say what's at one two three. Yes. You have, okay. to, you have to look at what's at one two three. That that's makes ex- sense. That's yeah. that's exactly that's exactly the problem. Awesome. Okay, I get it. That piece of code in Ohm is tiny. It's ju- it's just from immutable values that we can. Oh, we can just skip that. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome, and it's way faster. Yeah, it's way it's 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 surprisingly it's surprisingly faster. But it also again like I wanted to point out that it maps to how UIs work. Most UIs don't involve tons of things changing. Right? Usually only one little thing somewhere in your UI is changing. So the immutable thing is actually close it actually corresponds more closely to how people interact with UIs. Right. You don't need you don't need to look at all that stuff. That stuff is 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 not changing. And in fact, if you if you look at like games and all these, all these tricks that people do to make them fast, they're all ad hoc versions of don't look at the world that didn't change. <laughs> right, yeah, and make it so that the, the checking for equality is real fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And it, it makes sense that this falls out of your data structure choice because yeah. if you're changing a little bit all the time, then immutable data structures are going to work great. Yes. Because you're going to reuse everything that's old as yes. opposed to not. Right, and so so places where where React and 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 even ClojureScript run into trouble is the case where like you want to show twenty thousand things in a plot, and you have some function, and all twenty thousand points need to be animated to some other thing, right? And you're actually in control of that animation. Right. That is problematic because 
you're just changing everything over and over and over again, right? So that's definitely the scenario where you would likely use something else to make that work. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you clarifying. Yeah, of course. Cool. Of course. So I'm seeing this global, we, we touched on this earlier, but there feels like this global trend to immutability showing up. And this, this kind of shoves it all the way out to the front end. There have been some efforts on the closure side to, or an effort in particular with Datomic to push it into the database. And we have this basically complete stack now of uh, immutability all over the place. And it, it seems to be this decision that once you make it, you have a lot of a lot of these architectural benefits and sometimes speed, sometimes you know other things. But it's, it's like this really powerful idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I, I think either, I mean, I mean, I've built quite a few CRUD apps and, you know, I've done it in PHP and Ruby and Python. And I think even for CRUD apps, like something that's always painful to do is like you build an application and your client says, well, we want revision. We want revisions. Mm. And you're like, oh, we have to build a revision system. Or you have to find a third party library that does what you want. And you usually have to modify that to, to actually do what you want. Mm -hmm. And so what's nice about uh, immutability is it gives you a time model for free, right? So if you use something like Datomic, you don't have to worry about that. The database can support any higher level time abstraction you want because the database doesn't delete data. You can always get back to the old data. Mm -hmm. um, similarly for Ohm, that's why things like undo or rolling back the UI is easy because it gives you a model that makes it easy for you to do those things. Mm -hmm. you, don't have, you, don't have to, you don't have to start from scratch. That's the big idea. Right. You can just say start capturing these diffs as they come through and then move back through that structure if I want to. And you can build whatever sort of logic you want over it. In traditional mutable approaches, you have to build the entire infrastructure, then build whatever abstraction you want on top of it. So immutability gives you so the foundation, and then you can build, you know, we want to build a particular type of API over that. Something that struck me about the Ohm repo was that you have uh, no pull requests at this time, please, on the repo. Yeah, so it's still an experiment, and like, you know, I, it's not quite there yet. When I think the design is more solid and people understand it, I think it'll be a good time to open it up. Mm -hmm. But there are some, I think, still some big design issues. Again, I come from an object, a deeply object-oriented background as far as UIs, and having built quite a few of them, there are things that are unpleasantly difficult to do in ohms currently, mm -hmm. and um, that stuff needs work. So you want it to just be sort of springing from your, your vision of how it should be? For now, well, springing it from that, and as far as like it has to have these properties, and then people can decide. Oh, once those properties are sort of laid out, okay, um, I think there'll be a lot more room for feedback. Like right now, people like part of the problem is that Ohm is so new, and even React is really new, so people don't quite know how to build the applications that they built in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so they're just struggling with just that part of the concept. But now that I've sort of internalized React, then I say I see oh, there were these really cool things I could do before that in React or Ohm is difficult, and I don't like that. Right. So what's in the future for you? I'm excited about Ohm. So Ohm is the one library I spend the most time on uh, mm -hmm. thinking about. Um, again, I'm very much a UI programmer. I like doing UIs. For me, like UIs are kind of this perfect merging of human factors as well as engineering. Mm. Um, that's why I think I've kind of stuck with that space. Um, it's a lot more I, I like backend. I enjoy backend, but uh, user interfaces, I think, there's just a lot of th interesting things to discover there. I think Ohm is going to probably be my main obsession for 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, you guys are, are running uh, something called the Immutable Stack through Kitchen Table Coders. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so if you haven't heard of Kitchen Table Coders, it's um, sort of an initiative that I started with my, my friend Amit Pataru, who actually works for 53 as a prototype designer for paper. Hmm. 
so we started this three years ago because we have a very nice big space in Brooklyn. It's sort of like an open workspace. And we want to like, you know, rent is going up in Brooklyn, of course. And we want to control the rent. So we started doing these very small workshops for people who had never coded before or people who had coded but they wanted to learn a, a sort of a different piece of technology. And so the, the basically the idea with, with Kitchen Table Coders is that we run very small, intimate workshops, four or five people. And the idea is that everybody should walk away actually having learned something. Mm. And that's because Amit and I have both taught at like NYU and Parsons and these other places where the class size is often quite large, like 16, 18 students, and the range of experience is a little bit too broad. Mm. So we've, we tried to make it so that the range of experience is quite similar yep. and that the material is, is something that people will leave away having a good grasp on. So the very, this is the very first time we've done a, a real training session, though. So this is a training session that I'm running with my friend Kovas Baguta. We think we have something really cool here with you know, demonstrating how you can have immutability at every layer mm-hmm. in your architecture. We're, I think we're probably going to do like an address book app, right? Mm-hmm. And it, I think the thing we're really excited about, we, we can do the address book app. And so many things that you would just never do become, again, very simple. Like if you want to have undo on the client, if you want undo to be mirrored on the server, uh, if you want to have multiple people uh, modifying the address book, Lots of things that would require quite a bit more thought or more design can be done with a lot less sort of upfront thinking if you if you just adopt immutability. Mm. Are there still seats open for this? It's sort of a, done as a corporate training type thing. So there's only one ticket left. And I think today or tomorrow we'll probably send out, uh, open it up to freelancers. And people are more than welcome to get on the waiting list. Uh, we imagine that, you know, as we get closer, it's, it's next, not this Saturday, next Saturday, as we get closer... Uh, things will likely shift around. So if you want to get on the waiting list, uh, please do. That's a- April 12th, right? April 12th, yeah. Cool. So what haven't we uh, talked about that you want to discuss? Anything? Um, maybe what I'm sort of leaning on towards with, with Ohm is that like, I definitely think that um, you know, some people like to pit object-oriented programming and functional programming you know, uh, against each other. Yep. And, I, and I think that just, this just doesn't make any sense. And I've been doing Clojure now for six years. And probably if you'd asked me like, Six years ago, I would have been more of a zealot. And now that I've built a few systems with it, and I've, you see the trade-offs, right? For me, it's even less functional programming versus object-oriented programming. Uh, definitely for me, it's been more designing programs around immutable values. Um, and I think it's extremely important to not discard the incredible amount of thinking that's gone into object-oriented systems around modularity and sort of composability. Mm. I mean, functional programmers like to say that their systems are more composable because they have mathematical properties. But there are, I think, more important notions of composability that object-oriented systems uh, have definitely thought about, and in particular in UIs. When I, when I look at something like Coco, or I look at something like um, the better parts of, of like Java UI frameworks, uh, there's, a, there's, there's just a lot of thought has gone into how do we make a component reusable? How do we make these things interchangeable? How do we evolve you know, these sort of, of rich interactions? Um, and I think it's... The, the amount of work that's gone into object-oriented systems is just immense. And whatever we, if you decide to go the, uh, to do work with immutable values, you're quickly going to encounter um, that you want some property from the old system with the new approach. Mm. You mentioned the disadvantages of functional programming. What were those that you noticed? So functional programming, I think, is still a little bit new. So it's funny. Until I did Ohm, 
I was actually kind of, in some sense, skeptical about ClojureScript. Like, I really like Clojure and I really, I really love it. But uh, programming in ClojureScript until React came along kind of felt like, well, this, this immutable thing is really cool, but you still have to talk to the DOM. And so the entire idea is a bit marred by the fact that you're surrounded by great libraries that are immutable and that are hard to work with and all this stuff. And so I wasn't convinced that ClojureScript really offered a better story for a very long time. Mm. Well, a better story, but it was slightly better. Mm. I think now that there's a good idea how you could do, um, or not a good, but a better idea about how might one might do UIs in an immutable way, hopefully inspires people to think, what are other aspects of our systems where we hadn't thought about it? And if we just tweaked the way our system worked just a little bit, we'd be able to get everything we like about our previous design but now we also get all these properties that immutable values give us. So for, so for me now, it seems possible to take the functional programming thing and actually do something interesting. Uh, so I was pretty skeptical before because, and again, this boils down to not enough people putting these ideas into practice. That's really what it boils down to. Mm. The functional programming community is very small. The object-oriented community is very large. And I think diversity of approaches and opinions is extremely important towards better engineering practice. So I would say that it's not like FP doesn't have a lot to offer. There's just not enough people working in that space. Well, I think that's actually a pretty good place to uh, wrap up then. Cool. Cool. Uh, I appreciate you coming by. It was great talking to you. Yeah, great talking to you as well. Cool. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 93. And by the way, we just recently released a new book called iOS on Rails. It's currently in beta. However, if you are an iOS developer looking to get into Rails or a Rails developer looking to get into iOS, this book is a great marriage of the two. You should check it out while it's at a discounted rate during the beta period. Thanks for listening.